The Forgotten Voices Between pain and hope, the bitter sweet taste of searching and waiting. It was one semester away from graduation. He vanished. He went on a trip and got lost. He got lost. Nothing was known. He was, or is, I don't know, a very good student, good son, very helpful. He really helped us. A certain day in October, when she arrived at a memorial event for the remembrance of the enforced disappearance victims, she faces a picture of a young man with long hair and deep naive gaze. The picture belongs to a gallery of the victims exposed by the Asociación de Familiares de Detenidos Desaparecidos. And even though there are plenty of pictures, something makes her stop in front of this one in particular. There is something in the young man's face that seems familiar to her, and then reading the name on the label of the picture, she remembers where she had seen a familiar face. Some months ago, she spoke with the mother of that man, a woman who sits in front of her for almost one hour and tells her her story. The mother of the young man was born in 1957 in a countryside family formed by her parents and five siblings. Her mother inherits the land and being landowners, they devote themselves to cultivate the land and to raise the children. In the midst of cassava, coffee and cocoa crops, she grows up playing with her siblings and helping her parents. I helped in the farm, chopping cassava for the chickens. And then, at the age of seven, I came to Bucaramanga. Here, I had a sister who welcomed us and helped us with our education. This is how I grew. My mother working on the farm while I studied in the school. Her parents are determined to ensure that all their children get an education, so they send her to the city. She remembers those years as a great peaceful time without major worries, enjoying her time and classmates at school. When adolescence arrives, she enrolls in one of the most recognized high schools in Bucaramanga, where she graduated. Even though she is young and shy, she enjoys sports and plays her favorite one, basketball, every time she has the chance. In the meantime, her mother also decides to travel to Bucaramanga and now she owns a fruit stall in the market square. She helps her mother on the weekend after school. I help my mother sell fruit on the market square. I studied in the morning in Colegio de Santander, so as my mother sold fruit until 4 o'clock, I stayed with her to help during the afternoon. On Saturday and Sunday, I was there to help the whole day. Her life had not taken any major turn until one Christmas season, while she was selling moss in the center of the city to try to get some money to help her parents. She meets her future husband and father of her six children. He is also a peddler. He sells Christmas toys. At the age of 19, she seems to find some meaning to her life. She marries him, and one year later, they have their first child. By the end of the Christmas season, he is working as a mechanic and she already married is in charge of the household chores as well as taking care of their child. Three years later, her husband buys the plot of land where nowadays is located the mechanic workshop and her house.
The story continues, and when she starts talking about the birth and upbringing of her children, she cannot hold her tears. It is her oldest son who disappeared some years ago. He graduated from high school at Colegio de Santander, and then went to college at the Unidades Tecnológicas de Santander. He was one semester away from graduation. He vanished. He went on a trip and vanished there. He vanished. Nothing was known. He was, or is, I don't know, a very good student, good son, very helpful. He really helped us. She starts crying in the middle of the interview. The memories of her son plunge her into silence. After a break, the story continues with the description of her other children. The second son is mentally ill. He has seizures. He spends his time helping his uncle in the workshop. The third one studied in Colegio San Gregorio Magno. Then he got into the Unidades Tecnológicas de Santander to study topography and graduated there. His father told him, I can no longer pay for your studies. So he found a job, paid for his studies and got into this to study civil engineering where he graduated. He is now supporting the family. My only daughter, she studied at Pilar and then in the Unidades Tecnológicas de Santander. She studied business administration. She is now working and has a son and a husband. My fifth son is also mentally ill. He is working in Vanguardia, a local news outlet, selling newspapers on the streets because his mental illness is mild. He can work, whereas my second son can't. His memory doesn't work. My last son studied at Colegio de Santander and as he didn't want to continue his studies, he did conscription and stayed in the army first as a professional soldier and then as a marine. He is working there. Her labor as a mother is relentless. Not only does she have to take care of her six children, she also has to deal with the mental illness of two of them, who from a very early age are constantly having seizures and problems. The moment she's asked about her formula to deal with these situations, she simply answers. Oh, it's terrible to see him there, having seizures, shaking, moving his hands. It's very hard. She also explains the problems she encounters when she tries to find his second son a school to study, since to his illness he has seizures, mental retardations and learning difficulties. I sent him to study in Escuela Primaria de Bucaramanga. In first grade, they told me that it wasn't possible to have him there for his learning difficulties. They taught him the same thing every day, and yet he was not learning. If one will teach him something, the other day he will have forgotten it already. So I decided to take him to the Institute for Learning Disabilities. There, he studied for six years. When he became 15 years old, I had to look for a different place 
because they did not receive students older than that. At that moment, my husband told me that if he wanted, he could come to the workshop to help. As his father is not working in the workshop at the moment, he is helping his uncle. He helps with simple daily tasks, such as carrying the wrenches and other tools. He wakes up at 5 or 6 in the morning, takes a shower, eats breakfast, and then goes to work. The workshop is in the same house, on the first floor, whereas we live in the basement. He is working there every day. He wasn't good at studying, so he spends his time there. The fifth of her six children is also mentally ill. The disease causes him fevers at a very young age, constant seizures, and also affects his mobility in the legs, but not his ability to learn. His mother says that He ended up walking badly. He got operated, but it helped only a little bit. He does study and work. He also drinks. <laughs> and he's normal. He didn't get so affected by his limitations. He was suddenly missing. But it is the oldest of her children, a young college student who through many struggles is trying to move forward, who vanished in strange circumstances while on a business trip. His disappearance leaves a deep sorrow in his family, especially his mother, who up until today mourns the absence of her son. He studied at the Unidades Tecnológicas and at night worked in a taxi owned by his uncle. He lent him the taxi and my son worked at night at 7, 8, 9, 10. Sometimes it will go until 12 or 1 in the morning to support us. The circumstances surrounding his disappearance were so confusing that moment as they are now. The trip is going well and he can even communicate with her mother and an aunt to let them know that everything is going fine. But that is the last call. The last time they hear his voice. Some people hired him to bring a machine, an electric saw, but I didn't know. I mean, I trusted him so much that I didn't ask him where he was going or anything. That is who they were. Mom, he said, I'm going to make a trip. What's that? I asked. An electric saw, he answered. Fine, I said. Take lots of care. In the municipality, he called me at about seven at night to tell me that I shouldn't worry, that he was okay. The next day, he didn't call or anything. I called him and he no longer answered his cell phone. Then, an aunt who talked a lot with him said that he was stranded and that there was a roadblock and plop, they hanged up. No more was known. He was in there, but then there was a roadblock. It was sort of like a military one, and then he was suddenly missing. 
When she realizes that her son is not communicating again, the anguish begins to take over. That's why after a few hours, she decides to call him at his number. But despite the persistence, she receives no answer. A few days go by, and still, without getting to talk with him, nor get any information about him, she keeps calling till finally someone answers on the other side of the line. Finally, one day, they picked up from his phone, and I said to the other person, Could you do me a favor? I was all nervous. I said, Do me a favor, eh? Where is the owner of the phone? He said, No, he's not here. So I passed the phone to my girl. No, no, here, mommy. You talk. They answered. You talk. I was shaking. And she was also shaking from the anxiety she got. Then she picked up the phone. Look, do me a favor. I need the owner of the phone. He said he's not here. He solved it. She asked, what do you mean he solved it? He answered, yes, he solved it because he had no money. She said impossible. He said back, no, no, that's not true. I will tell you the truth, um, he looks this way. He didn't tell her his name, but he described him. Long hair, green eyes, white complexion, everything. He told her everything. So she said, yes, sir, that's him. He said, ah, he's such a son of a... That's what they said. So she said, no, how can you say that? Don't you see that he's starting here? How can you think that? He's nothing like that. So he said, no, that wasn't the truth. I'm going to tell you the truth now. Then she asked, to whom am I talking to? He answered, well, you're talking to a guerrilla man. She said, oh, sir, do me a favor. Put the boy on the phone. He said, no, that is not possible. Then she said, then what do I do? Tell him that my mother is very sick, that she is dying. Then he said, tell your mom not to worry. We have him working. Then she said, no, but put him on the phone. He said, no, I'm going to tell you the truth. He finally admitted it. This is a paramilitary talking. And so you feel neither here nor there. They drive you crazy. They generate confusion, as if it were a macabre joke. That is how the captors take the mother's agonizing call. The words of this person are hovering in her mind. She can't understand why they are taking her son, and even less, who has it. From that moment on, she has to get used to living with the pain of her child's disappearance. With the uncertainty of not knowing what happened on that trip, where they took not only him, but his travel partner, whose family also mourns his disappearance until today. They say that the most difficult part of the disappearance of a loved one is the impossibility of mourning, of not being able to grieve and do a proper burial.
the lack of information and certainty about their whereabouts, those responsible for their absence, and the reasons they claim to have for taking them. That is why, although sadness and concern follows each of her words, in the eyes of this mother there is a glimmer of hope, in what may be a bittersweet feeling. The longing to find him alive remains present in the midst of so much pain. Maybe that's why she is afraid to go to court hearings, because she doesn't want to hear her child's name in the lists of dead people. The other day, I went over there to fill a document, but still, well, I do not. I'm nervous about them telling me that he's dead. That's what I don't want to know, because one has hope that suddenly he's going to be alive, right? That one day he will arrive, but there is also the uncertainty that one does not know anything about him. I do not know. Despite her fears, she draws strength and, as she says, can go to hearings of demobilized paramilitary leaders, hoping that they will finally tell her what is happening with her son and she can complete this story that was cut short 13 years ago. There they told me that that there was going to be an inquiry from Jorge Cuarenta. Then I went there to Barranquilla. They put us on a big screen like a TV where one watches oneself and him but not directly in person and through a cell phone one asks questions. Then that day, I went ahead and asked. I said, Sir, please do me a favor. Do you know, I mean, do you know about someone, this guy? I sent you the papers and everything. He went on a trip. He went on a trip to Valledupar. In there, he vanished and he was carrying an electric saw, wearing a blue jean. I told him everything. Then he said, well, to my knowledge, no. But allow me to ask the other commanders and you can come in a month. I said, ah, all right, that's fine. Thank you very much. But the other victims asked why did I refer to him as sir, that I should call him, no, that, no. I don't like being like that. They said, sir? What sir? He's a killer. One that... <sighs> that man during the inquiry confessed a lot of crimes that, oh Lord, hearing them made you sad. Then, after he gave a bunch of declarations, they showed the questions and you had to leave a bunch of documents to show them to him. Then... A month passed, and I went. He said that none of the other commanders told him that they had seen that boy, that they didn't know a thing. Then I don't know if it was them or the others. Perhaps this confusion around her child's case is causing her hopes to not disappear. When asked what she thinks is happening with her son, she simply smiles and answers. He is alive. Yes, he is alive.
she even imagines the day of his return and expresses with sweetness. I think I will be very happy. I will gather some money to make a party. Despite these glimmers of optimism, she also recognizes she has periods where she feels overwhelmed and feels like giving up. I couldn't sleep. I woke up, well, hopeless. I used to start preparing lunch and then stay away from everything. I didn't want to do a thing. In an attempt to clarify the events, in the midst of a conflict that she doesn't understand, and of armed actors that she cannot even differentiate, she recalls that the disappearance of her son coincides with the assassination of a recognized political leader in the country, Consuelo Araujo, known as La Casica, Minister of Education during the government of Andrés Pastrana and who was kidnapped and assassinated in 2001 by the 59th Front of the FARC, right in the same area where her son was walking at the time of his disappearance. As it is to be expected, this kidnapping generated an important military operation in the zone that prevented the inhabitants from providing information on the whereabouts of the son of the protagonist of this story. Fear has them silenced. It's just that people don't say a thing. They say they don't know. Why? Because when he disappeared, they killed La Casica? When that happened, there were a lot of a lot of um, massacres. When she died is when he disappeared. And the people then, out of fear, well, they didn't say anything. People didn't say anything. And still to this day, do not say anything. They say that they don't know, that they have not seen him, and so on. The complexity of a conflict that is ailing to her and that knocks abruptly on her door makes it much more difficult to deal with the pain of the disappearance of her son, whom she is still waiting for, whom she doesn't forget, and who pays homage to him every time she brings him to the present in her memories and stories. Meanwhile, she, like millions of Colombian mothers, knows that life has to move on, and that's why, despite the pain, she continues to care for her family, until the day she can finally know the next chapter of this interrupted and unfinished story. <laughs>